so quiet but try again one more time one more time check check one two welcome to unbalanced mn yeah that's that's it i think i think that can just be the intro that's it that's Mike. all we need <laughs> how are you doing this week just welcome Miles. in sit down get pull up a fucking chair we're ready to go that's right that's we're right. coming at you from somewhere in the twin cities whoo good show tonight I'm ready. I'm excited to to put the capstone on this. On Bronze Age Pervert? I know, man. I'm just like, it's just going to be like, just like an enema. It's going to be so cleansing when I don't have to think about this guy. <laughs> it'll be a rain of, you know, it'll be like uh, Tim Robbins at the end of Shawshank Redemption. Mm. Just let that shit wash off. Yeah, and just crawling just through that sewer. <laughs> <laughs> Gross. Uh, no, and our bumper music this week is all going to be by... A St. Cloud band, Don't Look, Look at, at Me, me. Um, from their new album, Give a Cluck. Give a Cluck, available on Bandcamp. Uh, we'll have a link to that, but you can find it best by checking out Concrete Head Entertainment on Bandcamp is their label. Hell yeah. They're very cool. I highly recommend checking them out. Yeah. But uh, how's your life? What's happening in your life, man? Oh, you know, same stuff as usual, just... Uh, Enjoying the great melt. It's my favorite time of year when things are finally thawing. And I mean, I know we're not getting back to normal entirely with this pandemic or whatever. And we have this kind of looming threat of thermonuclear war or whatever oh, on the horizon. Right. But, you know, I'm just taking one day at a time. <laughs> just trying to enjoy my time because it, it could be short, you know, and that's all you can do is just Ugh. enjoy and do the best you can with what you got. I just saw a uh, like a, a 10 minute video on reddit the other day that was just this a simulation nuclear war simulation oh, no. and it was just like hour one hour two hour da, 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 uh. and it goes up to like six months and then like the conclusion is you'll notice that relatively few people died in the first day when all the nukes were actually <laughs> launched the, 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 the most of the casualties were four or five months later when we were in the third phase the nuclear winter right. phase is <laughs> after months of eating your friends and family to survive you know it's well, now that we open the no- the show on a cheery note, yeah, right. <laughs> let's, let's get into some real exciting stuff. Oh, you talking about the news? Yeah, we got the news. Down the street, father 
first news item. White Lives Matter rallies continue to be organized by Rob Rundo's newest street Nazi group. Folks may remember last season when we covered a nationwide push to launch a, quote, White Lives Matter movement in cities and states across the U.S., mostly via the encrypted messaging app Telegram. Most of these initial rallies fizzled pretty quickly if anyone showed up at all. However, the rallies have continued sporadically, and in the months since, we've learned that many of the rallies are being organized by one loosely organized group, the Rise Above Movement, and that takes place through what they call its active clubs, which is sort of like Hitler Youth meets CrossFit. For more on this subject, we turn to This Week in Fascism from itsgoingdown.org. Neo-Nazi and white supremacist groups continue to coordinate monthly banner drops and flash demonstrations under the White Lives Matter moniker, organizing largely through Telegram. In Sacramento and Newbury Park near Los Angeles, groups of about a dozen held banners recently. According to This Week in Fascism, the Southern California rallies largely appear connected to the Rise Above movement, otherwise known as RAM. RAM, formerly known as the DIY Division, was founded by Robert Rundo in 2017. Rundo fled the country after being indicted on federal charges for his involvement in the Unite the Right rally. According to ProPublica, RAM has, quote, a singular purpose, physically attacking its ideological foes. RAM's members spend weekends training in boxing and other martial arts, and they have boasted publicly of their violence during protests in Huntington Beach, San Bernardino, and Berkeley. Many of the altercations have been captured on video. Because of its focus on street fighting, it has been described as, quote, less like the Klan and more like a fight club, end quote. The active clubs are the way RAM expresses its political message, which Rundo appears to be organizing while on the run from authorities in Serbia. Whoa. They are specifically geared towards recruiting angry young white men with a taste for violence and white nationalist slogans. The primary t telegram channels where they are organized are called Will to Rise, all one word, and Active Club. Quote, as most institutions give little or no regard for white youth today, Active Club's role will fill that gap, Rundo wrote. The clubs emphasize identity formation. One widely shared flyer urges participants to, quote, create a small group of comrades who share our values of identity and camaraderie with the intent to, quote, awaken racial bonds between kin, end quote. Rundo continues, the active club is not so much a structural organization as it is a lifestyle for those willing to work, risk, and sweat to embody our ideals for themselves and to promote them to others. The active lifestyle is the counter to the left's culture of apathy, addiction, and vice. Get active today in your area and be the change you want to see. I love being a lefty, I'm just going to say, between those two. <laughs> yeah, man, give me the vice. Yeah, right? The active clubs, as Karim Zidane at Right Wing Watch and Tess Owens at Vice reported this week, are spreading both nationally and internationally and forming alliances with pre-existing fascist groups such as Patriot Front, though in small numbers. Cynthia Miller Idris, author of Hate in the Homeland, told Tess Owens advice, Messaging that comes across in these nationalist expressions are also about aspirational qualities like solidarity, honor, courage, trust, loyalty, and brotherhood. I think that's a really important part of why people are attracted to these movements. People, thinks it, 
people think it's just because of hate, but often they are attracted to the, the idea of being part of something. And as far as I am aware, there's not an official active club in Minnesota or the Twin Cities yet, but I don't think that means we can sit back and relax. Similar to Patriot Front and other accelerationist groups like Adam Waffen, Rundo's gang of pretty boy Nazis don't have the time or patience for politics as usual. They're training and preparing for the opportunity to use violence. And there are many different shades of fascists, particularly in America, but I think these guys are among the newest, most novel, and potentially innovative formation of street fascists that I've ever seen while doing this work. So yeah, that's the end of story one. How, how are you going to top <laughs> yeah, how am I these gonna... active clubs? Let's see. Enrique Tarrio catches oh, conspiracy indictment <laughs> for his role in January 6th. Cool. The Washington Post reports that Enrique Tarrio, disgraced leader of the Proud Boys and federal informant, has been formally indicted for conspiracy for his role in planning of January 6th. These latest charges stem from footage of Tario meeting with Stuart Rhodes, president of the Oath Keepers, and the leaders of other organizations in the days before the attempted coup. On top of that, the release of encrypted chats show a clear command structure at work during the storming of the Capitol, with Tario at its head. According to the Miami Herald, quote, Despite his physical absence, an indictment issued earlier this week portrays Tario, who lives in Miami, as a key plotter in a plan aimed at stopping Congress from certifying Joe Biden's presidential election victory over Donald Trump. In text, in text exchanges from other Proud Boy members, Tario backed a, quote, 1776 returns plan, end quote, that called for occupying crucial buildings in D.C., including the House and Senate buildings. He also supported staging the, quote, main operating theater at the Capitol steps. Mm-hmm. In one exchange on the morning of January 4th, Tario advised his colleagues that, quote, you want to storm the Capitol, end quote. The following day, the 5th of January, Tario met in a Washington, D.C. parking garage with the founder of another extremist group, the Oath Keepers, about coordinating efforts to target Congress. Overall, the indictment's evidence would appear to undermine arguments by some defendants implicated in the January 6th probe, that the assault on the Capitol was a spontaneous protest. Legal experts say the 30-page indictment against Tario and five other Proud Boys defendants offers an extraordinary amount of details in the form of social media and encrypted messages. Among the indictment's revelations is the 1776 Returns Plan, a nine-page document spelling out how the group should occupy Congress, quote, with as many people as possible, end quote, to show that, quote, we the people are in charge, end quote. Tario also held a video conference call with other Proud Boy members on December 30th, 2020, saying that they had to follow the commands of leadership. He warned they had a choice, quote, fit in or fuck off. When you sent me like your script for this and I read it, I, I, my mind was kind of blown because I haven't been following the J6 stuff. And like, it seems pretty clear cut that <laughs> it was all very well organized. Oh, extremely. And that the Proud Boys had a, a leading role. Quoting further from the Miami Herald article, quote, while Tario's comments and postings seemed to put him in an alleged conspiracy, he wasn't with about 100 other Proud Boy members who joined in on the attack at the Capitol building. 
the indictment says. After his arrest on January 4th, 2021, on charges of burning a Black Lives Matter banner from an earlier protest in Washington, D.C., a judge ordered him to leave the area. Tario left on January 5th for Baltimore just before the assault on Congress. I think most people that are following the Proud Boys closely understand that for a large portion of the organization at this point, Tario is persona non grata. Many Proud Boy chapters, including his own, sought to expel him once they learned of his collaboration with federal agents. However, many chapters also continue to vocally support Chairman Henry. This includes Minnesota's Proud Boys. What I'm describing, in essence, is a split in the organization. There are chapters that remain loyal to Tario, and there are others that despise him and are looking to fill the vacuum of leadership. Most notably, perhaps, being the Indiana chapter, which is led by Brian James, a notorious and violent neo-Nazi with past experience in the Vinlanders and the outlaw Hammerskins. The Proud Boys are largely decentralized in structure, and while there are key groups of leaders who take point for certain duties, There's no one clear leader. Lastly, I should probably let local listeners know that there have been some Proud Boy sightings in northeast Minneapolis again, particularly around the bars, which seems to be one of their favorite parts of town. If you can, keep an eye out for their stickers and colors and report any sightings to local community defenders or local journalists. This show would be a good one to let know. It's nice. It's sort of relieving to watch the Proud Boys implode, too. In a, in a way, but I don't think that that means they're going away. I mean, if anything, since, you know, the election and the fallout of January 6th, I only see them growing in numbers, mm-hmm. uh, which is unfortunate. People were saying this years ago that if you don't elect someone like a Bernie Sanders, that could provide material changes to people in the lower classes of society that the insurgent right is going to continue to gather all the ammunition that it needs because of the failed policies of the neoliberal center. We have yet to fully deal with these issues of poverty and racial tension in America. We're just going to keep seeing different waves of, of this type of street fascism come to the fore. Relatively, that's more cheery than a <laughs> nuclear... <laughs> Yeah. Annihilation. We're starting it off on just <laughs> we, a banner yeah, no, we're note just tonight. Uphill. Uphill. <laughs> just, just a regular joyride here. Just. Well, I mean, let, let's be honest. People don't tune in to us for fucking laughs and jokes. <laughs> we ain't that funny. I mean, I think I'm funny, but I mean, I oh, know I'm not that funny. God. But that's it for the news. from the Twin Cities. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Again, bumper music this week is by the St. Cloud band Don't Look at Me. I am enjoying it. I feel like everything else we've done, the first two episodes were like folk music mm-hmm. and it was good music, but like it's nice to have something with a little distortion. Yeah. A little punchy guitar, a little, you know, in your face kind of lyrics. 
on to the main show. I'm a little hoarse tonight. I uh, woke up hoarse this morning and was like, oh no. And so we'll see. Because I have some pages to read at you. Oh, I... Please, Miles, as I go through this, do not hesitate to interrupt me. <laughs> I won't. Okay. This is part two of a look at the life and ideas of one Mr. Kostin Almaru. In our last episode, we dug into his life story, you know, going from Ceausescu's Romania to his ascendancy as the wackiest fascist in the West. In this episode, we're going to dig into his ideas. You never read his book, did you? I, I got it through as much of it as I could. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yes, I do. So maybe I'm not an expert, but I feel like I've got what I need. Oh, you well. Know? well, you're in for a treat. We're going to go through the whole book. The whole um, yeah. shebang. Yeah. So one note, though, before we dig into this, I'm really trying to look at Kostin's ideas in good faith, although he does make that hard to do. That is our first big task, is just untangling Kostin's bullshit from his ideas from his political project. We're going to start by just talking about how to read this fucking bonkers nonsense of a book, then I'll walk you through the book. In the third part, I'm going to lay out a couple of critiques of the book and his ideas. And then finally, I started last episode by saying that Kostin was one of my biggest influences politically and artistically. And I want to explain that. Good, good. Mm. Shall we? Yes. Okay, so let's start by asking, how the fuck does one even read Kostin Almaru? That's a good question. Um, so, yeah, well, I'm not recommending you read the book. Please don't. Or anybody. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm not going to dissuade anybody from doing it either. Just be clear about your own values before you start reading it. Like, ground yourself in, like, a sense of egalitarianism and respect for people and you'll be okay. Uh, this book isn't going to, like, brainwash you. Find the book for free. It's on the internet. Don't give them money. And uh, just make sure you're clear about your own values. I think um, that's good advice. Especially the don't give him money part. <laughs> right. Quick trigger warning. Uh, this episode is going to be pretty gross. Mm. Um, we're going to have uh, talk about rape. We're going to have some slurs against gay people, women, and people of color. Um, we're going to have some allusions to murder and suicide. Pretty gross. Mm. And we're just diving into the bile, man. It's worth doing it. You'll, you'll, you'll find something on the other side of it if you are able to stick through it. I promise you that. I think so. I think so. But Kostin opens the book by saying it's only for people who already agree with him. Oh. Um, seriously, the third sentence of the book is, quote, I hardly have anything to say to most who aren't like me. Still less do I care about convincing, unquote. So... Starting off pretty strong there. Yeah, right? Like we, Very we, confident. <laughs> well, is, is it because if, if you notice, that's sort of like the uh, rhetorical equivalent of a kid yelling, I have a bulletproof vest when he's playing <laughs> cops and robbers. Right. It's just like, you know, he doesn't have to address any contradictions in his thinking. He doesn't have to respond to any critiques or even actually develop his ideas because it's not for you. If you don't like it, man, fuck you. It's not for you. <laughs> yeah, tough he, shit. He makes it damn near impossible to read the book in good faith, and I'm going to ignore it. If you don't succumb to a fatal eye roll and manage to like push past that, as you said, very strong, 
opening, uh, you'll figure out that the book is completely fucking bonkers. Uh, he jumps from, like, evolutionary theory to, like, Gnostic sects to nightclubs to Nietzsche. Um, there's, like, slurs directed at women, people of color, and trans folk, especially. You want to play a quick game? Sure. Okay. Would you like to play a game? Game is just open the book at random, read a sentence or two. All right, random sentence. First one is, but now that this world has disappeared, you have no easy way of even knowing where to start. Its boundaries were policed, its entry points were surveilled, but it always existed as a space of freedom outside the pervasiveness of domestication in post-industrial civilization. Let's not forget, I repeat, that the, quote, gay underworld was hardly just the gays, but precisely the world penetrated by all types of deviants, perverts, whores, pimps, impresarios, nightclub owners, mafia, gangsters, spooks, intelligence service of all kinds. Just see the Dark Ocean Society and you will understand. Mm, I looked that up, Dark Ocean Society. It's like unimpressive. Let's do another one. Do another one. Let's see what I find. This is, this is a fun game. Okay. <laughs> Youth and beauty are universally hated in almost all human societies in history. (laughs) These societies are run by decrepit, sclerotic old men. Sometimes they use image of fat women, earth mother, to beat the young men over the head with and make them submit. Other times they promote ugliness in all ways. Ugliness and perversity in custom, scarification, circumcision, and self-mutilation. You are right, dude. What the fuck? The whole book says that. You can't go through it without running into some diatribe like that. I almost gave up on the book like 20 pages in. The only thing that kept me going is here is Al Maru on his podcast explaining why he's so fucking bonkers. Ignore this story. It will go away because my whole thing, it has a built-in protection. Anyone who says... My name in public looks like a lunatic. This is actually one of uh, artists' goal in 2015, 2016, when we knew each other very well. And artist, if you listen to my show, I hope you come back. We need you. Please come back. But he said he wants uh, the day when a newscast stuffed, uh, uh, you know, a kind of stuffed mannequin with makeup. This, uh, when, when such a creature will say a bronze age pervert on television, artist wanted to see this and. You know, they'd look like a lunatic, right? This is a built-in defense of not just me, but all of the online right. Actually mentioned me in that episode, though not by name. Wait, what? Yeah. In the name of the so-called publication, Minnesota Reporter, so it must be journalism, right? But it's not journalism. It's some Soros blog. And what they do, they hire a low-rent Bolshevik like this guy, he was working on a piece, you know, I'm working on a piece, yeah. So this human rat, in writing this attack... Oh, I, what? It's true, yeah, I put that on my cover letters when I apply to jobs. Holy I shit. Do. That's a badge of honor, my oh, guy. Oh, hell, I'm, I'm proud of it. But anyways, um, <laughs> on one level, the wackiness of the book is supposed to discourage people like me and you from reading it. True. 100% true. I pushed on, though, uh, trying to figure out, like, what the fuck to do with all this nonsense. Um, and I went through his posts on the fora, which is that far-right web forum we talked about in the last episode, looking for clues. Um, and I found this short thread 
So this is Bronze Age perverts uh, talking about numerology and Machiavelli's works. Quote, One can find out certain secrets from the discourses, that's Machiavelli's book, by counting every 13th chapter. 26 is also the number for tetragrammaton in Kabbalah. End quote. I gotta say, Miles, there might be something to this numerology angle. What do you think, though? I mean, do you think he was he was purposeful in this? What is his interest in numerology? He has a BA in mathematics. Oh yeah, yep, right. That's right. From uh, from MIT. Mm-hmm. So um, I wouldn't put it past him definitely to work in a bunch of like nerdy math jokes into okay. it. Got like it. that's entirely possible. Um, but I think I figured out one of his like secret meanings that he encoded uh, in chapter sixty nine. Coasting finally, chapter sixty nine for the first time. And more clearly than anywhere else, calls for a fascist revolution. In this chapter, he alludes to the Heian period of Japan, writing, quote, The imperial bureaucrats grew useless and weak, and by the end of this age, all the actual physical power was with the samurai. What I find amazing is how long it took them to figure out they no longer had to listen to the weak commands of the imperial hierarchy, and that they were actually the rulers. End quote. He explicitly compares Heian period values, uh, which he names honor, duty, divine right, to modern liberal concepts like legitimacy, soft power, and rights. And he calls them, quote, delusions meant to distract and obscure men of power from their own strength and aims and put them in service to someone else, end quote. Hmm. He continues, quote, Eventually, they do realize, however, that they don't have to listen and that they are actually the ones who rule. This moment when the game is up, the moment of revelation, is what I've always found very amazing. In the modern world, everything moves much faster. I expect that not long from now, such men will awaken in the West and, I suppose, other parts of the world. The central point and purpose of the book and of his project is to make a fascist revolution conceivable, to sort of outline how his uh, disciples could lay the foundation for one, and to sort of imbue fascism with uh, positive connotations, because it's it's a dirty word. It's not unlike the secret. Uh, He's just in the visioneering stage of the revolution right now. Oh, boy. Yeah. What was the whole term about the secret? You know, you see it, you manifest it. You yeah, know, you exactly. Just, if you just think about exactly. it hard enough, it'll it'll come true. Oh, Lord. He's trying to manifest a fascist revolution. Yeah. Or maybe he's just waiting for the world to collapse and then just assumes fascists will rise to power. Um, maybe. But, yeah. Well, you know, even the pen name, Bronze Age Pervert, is a reference to the Bronze Age collapse. And the pirates that he and his fans, like, talk about all the time mm-hmm. um, are the... Sea peoples who are who were theorized to have accelerated the Bronze Age collapse with their advanced forms of warfare. Oh wow! Yeah, he's he's an accelerationist. If if he's not calling for an out and out fascist revolution, he's an accelerationist, mm. and that's what he's getting to. Like this is what he's working on. This is what he's on about. This is what he's doing, and we can't discount a numerological significance to his book climaxing on chapter sixty nine. Oh, I would I, I wouldn't put it past him. No, I wouldn't put I would, it past him. I wouldn't his... either, knowing what we learned in the last episode and all of his little zany antics and things. Well, not only that, but he went to Yale specifically to study with Stephen Smith, mm. um, who is one of the leading experts on Leo Strauss in 
the country. And one of Strauss's key ideas was that philosophers who had dangerous thoughts sort of hid them, imbued their work with like esoteric meanings. That for a post where he's talking about numerology and Machiavelli's chapter numbers, he's referencing an essay Strauss wrote about Machiavelli. Wow, okay. So the multi-layered quality of his project, it goes beyond just his writing, though. Uh, like, for instance, he used to troll journalists who wanted interviews by directing them to a homoerotic BDSM story called Dominated by Doug. It's, uh, <laughs> it's an 18-part, 105,000-word story that was published online from 1998 to 2004. I guess the pervert's a big fan. Just nonsense trolling, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Well, in the first sex scene, Doug rapes Clay, the narrator. Oh, Lord. Who decides he loves it halfway through. Oh, Jesus. Um, then you get to I'm not religious, but I keep saying, oh, Lord, or Jesus. <laughs> oh, Lordy. Oh, Lordy. <laughs> this is a lot. Coasting. Yeah. Well, then you get to the last sex scene, and it's a literal sexual hierarchy. With Clay on the bottom, who's getting fucked by a man, who's simultaneously getting raped by Doug on top. In the final paragraphs, Doug expounds on his ideas of a kind of hierarchy of human types, uh, with men above women, but some men know better than women, and only a small number of real men at the top. It's super fucking rapey, super fucking fashy, and perfectly in line with Kostin's ideas. Yep. So... All his shit does mean something, then? Eh, maybe. <laughs> maybe. I could write a, a book with 70 <laughs> chapters and do something funny on the 69th, you know? I mean, <laughs> doesn't make a genius, but I mean, I can see the point you're making. <laughs> well, there's another Fora post I want to share. It's, it's in this long thread on one of his posts. He's talking to people about, like, esotericism in writing. And somebody makes the point that, like, Nazi architecture was designed with different materials that were stronger and weaker so that they would decay in a certain way to leave alluring runes for future generations to rediscover fascist ideals encoded in the architecture. Interesting. I had no idea. They're having this conversation in the context of talking about encoding or doing something similar with writing okay. to try to make it intriguing to pull people in. Hmm. Elmaru is part of a movement, the alt-right, and a key part of their project has been to craft like alluring cultural artifacts in which they can embed far-right ideas and ideals. One of the functions of his big, grand, Nazi architectural esotericism, you know, when he names all these philosophers, when he is spinning these wild mythologies about lost civilizations, um, he, like, invokes the image of mutant lizards culling the herd, just, like, all that shit. Like, it's, it's there to entice the curious and self-assured sort of into a, into a labyrinth mm. that he's made. It, like, it doesn't matter how many of the, like, the little passages to his writing just dead end. It's supposed to be intriguing and frustrating and encourage people to crawl through this muck and shit you talked about, Shawshank earlier, <laughs> looking for some deeper meaning, but the shit and the muck you're crawling through as you look for the deeper meaning is the deeper meaning. It's shitposting. Right. It's rickrolling. It's like just the whole rainbow spectrum of edgelord shit but imbued with, like, political and mystical significance. Right. By politics, I mean fascism. 
By mysticism, I mean, like, uh, there's this guy, Julius Evola. Mm-hmm. Had, like, he was a fascist thinker. And he developed, like, this mystical, esoteric ideas to justify fascism. Yeah. You know, I said last time that Michael Anton's review of Kostin's book is pretty solid. And it is. In it, he quotes that same Strauss essay, mm. um, the one about Machiavelli that Kostin referenced in that fora post. So this is Strauss by way of Michael Anton. Quote, The ruthless counsels given throughout the prince are addressed less to princes who would hardly need them than to the young who are concerned with understanding the nature of society. Those true addressees of the prince have been brought up in teachings which, in light of Machiavelli's wholly new teachings, reveal themselves to be much too confident of human goodness, if not the goodness of creation, and hence too gentle or effeminate. Just as a man who is timorous by training or nature cannot acquire courage, which is the mean between cowardice and foolhardiness, unless he drags himself in the direction of foolhardiness, so Machiavelli's pupils must go through a process of brutalization in order to be freed from effeminacy. End quote. Anton follows that quote by saying that reading Coasting is, quote, certainly on one level to undergo a process of brutalization. <laughs> Basically, he's like curating a museum of thought, and like he's arranged all his favorite thinkers and ideas and strands of cultural DNA, and then he invites readers to just go and explore it at their own pace. Oh, yeah. And following their own interest and curiosity. Kind of like a wax museum. <laughs> he's curating a, a wax museum gallery <laughs> exhibition just full really of weird dead old guys leaning hard into like the image of him as like christopher lee dracula <laughs> <laughs> well, i can't get the schopenhauer centerfold out of my head from the last episode well in his in his work uh you know back to that centerfold like he said you know kosen he includes nietzsche obviously and uh Schopenhauer, but he also includes people like Hartiste, who's like a fascist adjacent or peri-fascist pickup artist blogger. Nice. Um, he's the guy pervert begged to come back, you know, in that short clip we heard at the beginning. He's the guy who inspired all of Kostin's wackiness. But at the same time, he, he he's very careful to erase any leftist thinkers that influence him. Mm. Like nothing that he includes in his little museum contradicts his message. Mm. Now on to the next part of our exegesis of Bronze Age pervert. <laughs> What's that word? Exegesis. Oh, jeez. It's one of those words that like, like I know I'm using it right in that sentence and I'm not like, I can't quite tell you what the definition is. <laughs> right. I don't even think I have enough money in my bank account to be able to use that word. <laughs> oh. You want to know about his book? Yeah, let's let's do it. Okay, how you doing? Let's check in here a little, really quick. You, you just letting the waves roll over you? Oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm good. You know, I'm I'm just I'm good. <laughs> you don't sound good. I'm good. I'm good, baby. I'm good. Yeah, this is fine. This is part of our rent for living on this planet is just trying to <laughs> fucking understand this asshole. I like that. Yes, this is. We're just paying our dues here. Mm-hmm. Okay, there are four parts to his book. Part one is titled The Flame of Life. Mm. No surprise, The Flame of Life is Costing's vision of transcendent masculine violence. 
he spends most of the first part of the book talking about this idea without really saying it clearly. And he spends the rest of the first part of the book just associating the already confusing value, idea, word, cloud of a concept with positive connotations. Mm. So at the end, the result is this very inspiring and like kind of vaguely erotic mess of like this violent, masculine, beauty, truth, value, goodness, strength, joy, laughter, murder, suicide, master, race, word, feeling, vital, energy, cloud. <laughs> the flame of life. Mm. That's it. I knew exactly what you were talking about when you said that. I want to I redo this. Flame of life. The flame of life. <laughs> we should add some echoes to the back of that. <laughs> so it sounds like the Wizard of Oz or something. Now, one could probably untangle this mess of an idea, but this is what I'm talking about. Crawling through the muck. Like, anytime the book makes you curious, you really have to ask how willing you are to debase yourself. Um, the only one I got down and dirty with here... Uh, was the bit about vitalism. For example, you know, you read the book, and then there's, uh, here's just a sentence comparing various Indo-European language family words, which Kostin insists, completely without evidence, quote, all ultimately refer to a kind of vital life force capable of superhuman strength, end quote. And then... Sounds like something I want. Yeah, right? It's like, give me this. Right. Go kill yourself and everyone you know. It's the manliest thing you could do. Here's another. Quote, In the beginning was the word? No! In the beginning was the demonic fire that bursts out in men like Alcibiades and lays low the cities of men and exposes all their nonsense. I wonder if he's like a Megadeth or an Alice Cooper fan or something too, because this is very metal. It's vital. It's vital writing. Vital. Yeah, I mean, you're right. He's, like, trying to shove these, like, rousing feelings into it, right? But it's fantasy. Mm -hmm. Like, this is just not how the world works. His whole, like, mystical thing that he sees up there in the sky bears no resemblance to anything I've ever experienced in my life. Right. Me Uh, either. Now, Kosi would probably say that we are just bug men. Uh, Basically, we're too effeminate. Yeah. Uh, to have ever really drunk deeply of the pure man, vital beauty, truth, feeling soup. Um, <laughs> needless to say, I find this unconvincing. Yeah. Um, but again, he's not writing for us, man. He doesn't actually have to explain any of this shit. True. It's his clubhouse. Mm-hmm. And we can't come in and play if we don't play by his rules. Mm. So let's let that be for now. Okay. Um, but when I have been talking about like how he privileges his instincts or when he privileges his emotions or his feelings um, as a way of knowing truth, like this is what I mean. Um, he's just asserting that he has this almost mystical connection to some deeper truth. You asked me to try and understand what is appealing about this guy. And I think I was never a very religious person. I always uh-huh. had good influences around myself, but I also like learned to trust myself early on. And yeah. so I feel like I have a strong sense personally towards my intuition and towards my instincts. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I essentialize that or that I place my instinct above anyone else's instinct or that's where this guy, whether purposefully or not, he's he's fucking it up. He's all wrong there, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, the, the other thing I've been thinking about as I've been reading this is um, Umberto Eco's Ur-Fascism where he says that like, fascists are destined to lose wars because they live in a fantasy land mm-hmm. they they can't 
analyze their own strengths and weaknesses and they can't analyze their enemies. Right. They have no concept of it. Yeah. Just riding a wave of machismo and bloated sense of self. The flame of light. Also, a big part of this first section where he's contrasting the life driven by vital man beauty soup, uh, he contrasts <laughs> that to what he calls yeast life or bug life. Oh, man. Um, which is just a variation on like classic right-wing populist propaganda that there's these undeserving elites, the wrong elites, the wrong people are elites at the top who are crushing from the top and then invading hordes, crushing the middle from a blow, mm. you know, and then the good people are caught in the middle. I mean, this just sounds like fascist anti-Semitism, really. Like, that's that's what they relied on to fill this gap in their othering, yeah, yeah, this ideology, and not just the othering, but the conspiracy aspect of it. Um, if reality reflects supernatural truth, and if that truth is the superiority of the strong and the strong-willed, why aren't they already in charge of everything? Right. So, like, fascism needs a conspiracy theory. They it, like it needs an explanation as to why the weak are stronger than the strong who deserve to rule because of how strong they are. <laughs> <laughs> and so what Coaston does with this bug life, yeast life thing is he sort of finds a new way to just sort of lump it all together. Um, you know, how can unsuppressible vital youth energy possibly be suppressed? The answer is an overgrowth of yeast life. Each individual cell, me and you, mm -hmm. plus trans people, people of color, on and on, all the classics. Each individual cell is subhuman and inferior, but all together... Uh, it becomes like this stifling organism that can suppress the unsuppressible by sheer mass. Yeah. Part two of the book, The Parable of the Iron Prison. Mm. Basically, what he's describing, what the iron prison is, is a mashup of what you and I would call neoliberalism mm -hmm. and you and me. Mm -hmm. It's like, mm. <laughs> it's the global world order and woke capitalism and lefty critiques of the global world order and woke capitalism. <laughs> In his book, he just calls this whole thing the Iron Prison, um, though since the book's publication, he's really preferred Globo Homo. Uh, That's the catch-all now. As the catch-all, yep. Globo Homo. This is kind of like the big word cloud vital fire of masculine syrup from part one. And in the same way, his ideas about the Iron Prison are kind of half-baked. And that's somewhat intentional. He wants the reader to finish the work. Mm. It's take-and-bake pizza, mm -hmm. you know? Still, this is one of the most lucid sections of the book, thanks to some evocative writing, such as, quote, When I speak of something like owned space, it must not remain mere word. When you understand something, I mean, you must see and feel it like you would a landscape you know from youth, how to navigate all its nooks, the different heights of earth, the banks of streams, where the trees are and how it feels inside them, how long it takes walking from this or that group of beach to the abandoned factory, so that the map is already in your body, unquote. One of the things I find interesting about this quote is that he's describing his childhood. Mm. So he's talking about either Newton, Massachusetts, or Bucharest, Romania. 
And in the next section of the book, he's got just this diatribe where he just rants about the suburbs, where he's clearly talking about Newton. Mm -hmm. um, and he calls the suburbs an absolute hell to raise children in, especially boys. He complains further that there are no nooks and crannies where boys can form gangs, be away from prying eyes or parents and others, and have the feeling that they are exploring and owning territory as there is in the city or the countryside. So in this section where he's talking about the iron prison, Kostin's kind of describing the problem that is philosophy, for lack of a better word, is meant to solve. It's the dominant system of governance and control in the U.S. and Europe in particular, but around the world. You know, something you and I know, like we've talked about, that I found a, a super sketchy address for Kostin online. Mm -hmm. And last summer, uh, I went to a... I went to Boston for a wedding and set aside an afternoon to go knock on the door. The Alamarus did used to live there, but they'd moved to Florida two years previously. Uh, and the neighbor I spoke to didn't know them, but vaguely remembered their son. Talk about due diligence, by the, the way. It was an opportunity. Listen here, listener. <laughs> this man put his life on the line. And went and knocked Hard on the buddy. door. Went and knocked on, like, yep, in, in suburban Boston. <laughs> like, hey. So those are mean no, suburbs. I was going to say. Be careful. Get out of my yard. Fucking spear you. <laughs> yeah. I just like walked around though and tried to imagine like what baby pervert saw when he was cruising the neighborhood on his huffy. Well, I'm in Newton Center, Massachusetts. Not too far from the uh, Harvard campus. It's very prosaic here. Very stereotypically suburban. Even literally a white picket fence behind Almaru's house. He said the trip was mostly a bust. Uh, Almaru didn't live there and hadn't for a long time. But I did notice something that I thought was worth sharing actually about the architecture, <laughs> which is really funny. But, uh, you know, Newton has been a middle-class to wealthy liberal enclave for a very long time. And the buildings reflected a lot of the values of the people who lived in them. You know, you can sort of see in these houses the material promises of the New Deal that are, like, exemplified in the post-war ramblers slowly being supplanted, first by these big boxy monstrosities whose only notable aesthetic quality is that they're fucking big and then later by just these gaudy mcmansions that copy this or that classic or modern style as cheaply as possible it's like the march of progress you know that picture i think so yeah yeah but, yeah, yeah yeah it's like a uh, human evolution from like monkey to caveman to modern human mm -hmm. but instead it's like this idealized new deal materialism evolving into woke capitalism right and that's just where he grew up so you can kind of see where he's coming from a little bit. A little bit. Well, I mean, and also... Um, As a kid. Yeah. Well, the other thing is um, I kind of vaguely remembered a podcast episode I heard that cited Newton as a case study of liberal hypocrisy, in particularly around race. Okay. I couldn't find that, but I did find a PhD dissertation by someone named Lily D. Geismer, called Don't Blame Us, Grassroots Liberalism in Massachusetts, 1960 to 1990, that made about the same point. Okay. Quote, 
By 1970, in an article entitled Liberalism in the Suburbs, Newsweek characterized Newton and its neighbors as the seedbed for liberal causes, such as civil rights, anti-war activism, environmentalism, and feminism. The political activities of grassroots liberals, however, also made this set of affluent communities the sites for the major battles that established lasting constraints upon the ability to create racial, spatial, and economic equality. End quote. At one point, Geismer even uses the word hypocrisy to describe Newton residents' opposition to busing initiatives. Huh. Like you said, you kind of see where he's coming from with that, and kind of. But we're also starting to see like one, a shortcoming to his work, which is that he privileges his own experiences and instincts. Right. And he seems to have no analysis of the limitations of his own experiences. So everything to his left becomes like just this undifferentiated lump where right. it's like... You can easily fit new things under it. Yeah, and I mean, he can't escape the suburbs in his mind. If there's anything that I can track about him is that not only are his politics are devoid of any type of empathy or compassion, but that he views those that value those things as subhuman and less than. And I can't believe you would even like begin to have empathy for someone else and base your worldview around that. You, you libtard or whatever. Mm-hmm. That, that's just one of the big things that jumps out at me. His his politics are just completely devoid of any level of looking beyond himself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's a weakness. Yeah. He has no ability to, like, accurately gauge his enemy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so the first part of the book is about his values, what he wants out of life, the fire of life, you know? Yep. Uh, the second part's about what's in the way, the problem, the enemy. Okay, so part three of the book is called Men of Power and the Ascent of Youth. In this part, he sort of lays out his idea of how men can transcend the iron prison to touch that vital beauty, truth, youth slime mold that's just throbbing away up there in the sky. Um, (laughs) Throbbing. Spoiler alert. The answer is variations on a murder-suicide theme. Most of this part is parables of men who have done this, transcended the iron prison in some way or another. Uh, most of them are ancient, but uh, one or two modern dudes as well. Uh, in some cases, the suicide is metaphorical, with the men just displaying a lack of concern for their own lives or well-being. Uh, however, and despite his wackiness, Coasting's not an individualist. Uh, the murder-suicide is never about self-aggrandizement. Mm. It's always in service of a grand purpose. For example, he references Achilles throughout the book, who, in his mythologizing, was filled with a spirit of fire by the goddess Athena and went on a suicidal rampage. He links that rampage to a larger political goal. Quote, And you must understand one thing. The end of Achilles' mission was the total destruction of the city of Troy, the fire melting the brick of its alleys, its men killed, its women and children sold into slavery. This last was held to be the right of conquerors throughout the history of the Greek world, or at least for its vital period of ascent. End quote. The the grand fire, the culminating event or whatever. Isn't that just fucking like Bane from Batman? Wasn't that just like the (laughs) the whole thing? Then whatever comes afterwards, you know, whether the the gangs of vigilantes take over or whether it's, you know, but it's all about creating the great fire. Yeah. He's an accelerationist. Right. Yeah. But anyway, continue. Okay. Um, The very opening lines of this section are the ones that first intrigued me by their sheer fashionist, the... Life appears at its peak, not in the grass, hut villages, but in the military state. This is also the section that shows the influence of pickup artist culture most clearly. 
which mm. you may not expect. There's this guy, Hartiste, uh, was or is. I don't know if he's still writing. I don't really give a shit, honestly. He's a pickup artist blogger who coasted name drops online, but not really in the book. Uh, he was popular in the late 2000s to the early 2010s when coasting was developing his ideas. And uh, Hartiste's 16 Commandments of Poon illustrate his influence Jesus on coasting. Diving into the bile, man. Yep. I'm swimming in shit. Where were we? Hartiste's 16 Commandments of Poon illustrate his influence on coasting. With commandments such as, you shall make your mission, not your woman, your priority, and ignore her beauty, and be irrationally self-confident. Wow. Be irrationally self-confident. Yeah. Who does that remind you of? Uh, there's one story in Costine's uh, book of Hippocleides, an ancient Greek historical figure. In Costine's parable, Hippocleides goes to a feast to try to win the hand in marriage of some aristocrat's daughter. He's basically won the competition uh, when he's touched by that vital, brutal, masculine truth soup force, and he dances upside down on a table, and the father tells him he is out of the competition, but Hippocleides says, quote, Hippocleides doesn't care, end quote. Mm. Costine explains the parable, quote, In this one phrase, you have the whole attitude of this beautiful, reckless, piratical aristocracy that colonized and conquered their known world. It's an attitude that upsets all the moral fags of our time, of the left and right. Hippocleides went there to have a good time, to display and use his powers and excellence and biological superiority. But these two things are the same. He didn't care about the gain or loss of a wife. He didn't go to act like a meek, beaten male. Back to the 16 Commandments of Poon. Pickup artists like Hartiste were like looking for the secret key to fucking any woman they wanted, and somewhere along the way, one of the key elements became stop caring about women. As Hartiste put it in his 16 Commandments, make your mission, not your woman, your priority. Kostin's taken this a step further and cut out women altogether. He sort of like moved the art of the pickup to the political realm where it's definitely fascist. You know, it's like this powerful, aloof, real man using his innate powers to pull in the masses. There's this great Susan Sontag essay called Fascinating Fascism, uh, where she says, quote, A clue lies in the predilections of the fascist leaders themselves for sexual metaphors. Like Nietzsche and Wagner, Hitler regarded leadership as sexual mastery of the feminine masses as rape. End quote. On a side note, remember how I said I strongly suspect that Kostin obscures lefty influences? Oh, yeah. This is another example of that. The only time I've ever seen him speak positively of a leftist writer is in a fora post encouraging people to go read that Susan Sontag essay, Fascinating Fascism. He calls it a hostile and liberal review, but even so it is educational, shows what the other side thinks. Mm. Years later, <laughs> he's still talking about that essay. This is from the same episode we heard earlier are much concerned with theories of things like homofascism. That's a word they use, or fascist aesthetic. They, I don't know if they use that particular one anymore from uh, Susan Sontag, but uh, the concept was inherited and, uh, you could say, refined. The fact that this is a queer woman he's talking about is all the more amazing. And it kind of highlights how precarious he is intellectually, that he can't even acknowledge influences like Sontag because it 
contradicts the central message of his cis male superiority. Well, and insofar as that he will give them any hint of credit, he rolls it out as like opposition research the same way that I would if I'm trying to share information on a particular fascist or something like that. He's like, well, I don't agree with them, but I mean, this is how they think. You know what I mean? (laughs) Difference is I happen to be right and he happens to be wrong. Oh, see, and I'm just over here like, I love Bronze Age pervert. (laughs) Give me the fash. And then let me, let me, you're you're actually like the, the, the one that is trying to understand it. In, like, the deepest way possible. And I'm like, I understand enough. Fuck this fucking guy. That's all you really need to know. <laughs> bo- bo- both approaches are... Both are fine. Both are good. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, but anyways. Part four of Kostin's book is called A Few Arrows. Um, in his review of the book, Michael Anton brushes off this section. But I disagree with Mr. Anton. Uh, like I said, Costine's book climaxes in this section. This is the heart of what he's been saying and building to. Uh, maybe Anton's right that like philosophically or intellectually, the final section doesn't add anything. But Costin's a vitalist. For him, intellectual pursuits are only as valuable as the impact they have on the world. And this section is where he lays out his vision of how disciples could prepare for a fascist revolution. It's a lot of practical advice, tactics about how to further the cause. It's a lot of weightlifting, memeing, infiltrating military and security services, and a whole chapter dedicated to the transcendent glory of bros before hoes. People hoping to understand or contend against the right in online, intellectual, and cultural spaces could do worse than to read this part of the book, though. This is all the the practical, nitty-gritty, nuts-and-bolts and if you wanted to be a fascist operative, you know. Or if you were a lefty and you wanted to learn how fascists thought about what they were doing on the internet. Yeah, but that's a waste of time. Don't do not do that. That's such a waste. <laughs> <laughs> You're undercutting me, Miles. <laughs> You're supposed to be supportive. Oh, I'm sorry. You're supposed sorry. to believe in me. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll put my other hat back on. <laughs> All right, keep going. Okay. La- last time I'll interrupt. No, that's it. I mean, that's his book now. That's it. That's the book. That's the book. That's part four. Uh, yep, that's it. One through so, four. There should be like a really familiar fascism in Kostin's writing. This, uh, like this transcendent truth of biology as expressed in race and gender, uh, rigid elitist hierarchy, the assertion that only those at the top of the heap have any right to rule, climaxing with the leadership principle, and a cult of violence and death all sewed up in a perfect erotic but not garment. And any seams are covered by his bulletproof vest if I don't write it for you. Um, I roll my eyes at him. Uh, That's probably clear, but I've tried to describe his thoughts while staying inside the boundaries he lays out. But as you said, fuck him. Right, 100%. (laughs) Let's stop playing his game, yeah? Yeah. Okay. Let's go hard. Okay. So to start with, let's just call bullshit on his idea of vitalism, this eternal truth, beautiful young man soup, and see what happens. Uh, Now, that flame of life, word soup, that only makes sense if, A, there actually is a fascist god spirit above and behind the material world that only a select group of elite men are capable of experiencing, or if, B, he's mistaking his feelings um, for mystical truth. Feelings? I don't think he has feelings. Oh, he certainly feels a way about women. Um... (laughs) He's touched by the divine limb of something. 
right? But, but I mean, like, obviously, there's not a fascist god spirit. No. That's a fantasy. 100%. So what we're left with is the core of his ideology, his philosophy, his whole project, his brand of fascism, is just his own emotions, which he's sort of imbued with mystical and political meaning. I'm, I'm not talking about just like... You know, falling in love or being scared or whatever. I mean, I, I mean, like really specifically, say the way he feels about trans people. Right. Whatever visceral reaction he has to trans people, he's mistaking that for like a message from God. Right. Essentially, his transphobia, the discomfort he feels around women, his xenophobia, and on and on and on. And I'm not being flippant when I said he makes these feelings magical. He has a whole thing about how he isn't a materialist and how there's a mystical truth beyond physical matter. He even calls hormones big magic. This is where we're going to start hearkening back to his biography. He's brilliant, but he's not exceptional, right? Like when, we, when, he, go, when he goes home, he's got his brother there who's well on his way to becoming the kind of person that transnational banks make into a VP. And then his father's there at home, uh, who's an experimental research engineer at MIT. I couldn't find too much about his mother, though someone with her name got a master's in education from UMass Boston in 1997. So she's also Pretty smart. not a slouch. Yeah. You know, and then he goes to school, and he's outshined by the internationally famous for their charisma, B.J. Novak and John Krasinski, you know, <laughs> a.k.a. Ryan and Jim from The Office. He clearly struggles to talk to girls. He shows up to school dances in a blonde wig and a tweed jacket telling people he thinks they're wearing his underwear. Like, I imagine him as a high schooler, you know, all those familiar angsty feelings, walking around the neighborhood, and what's he see? Textbook liberal hypocrisy. Deep-seated racism and elitism hidden under platitudes about equality and civil rights. And right alongside it, at least in his mind, is Ceausescu's Romania, which is another kind of leftist liberal hypocrisy. You know, there's actually another fora post uh, where he calls for a natalist program for whites. Um, natalist? Natalist. Okay. Yeah, probably, yeah. Got you. I'd never heard the term natalist. Got you before so i looked it up and it's a policy designed to encourage high birth rates you seem to have heard the word before <laughs> right because i have friends that are anti-natalist unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> there's a whole set of politics that is problematic about that but we won't even go there <laughs> but back to coasting's uh, natalist program i didn't know what it was so i looked it up it's a policy designed to encourage high birth rates one of the most prominent examples i found was the Natalist program instituted by Ceausescu. Um, that's remarkably similar to the one Kostin proposes in his post. It even names the same number of ideal children. Um, Kostin, however, makes his more explicitly white and male supremacist. Wow. There's n no way he avoided trauma. No one who lived through the Ceausescu regime did. Right, of course not. But also something I learned after we recorded that last episode... Um, the Socialist Party, which Ceausescu eventually became the leader of, took control of Romania from a fascist regime. And many of Romania's anti-communist folk heroes were fascists. How much, how much fascist romanticism was around him when he was growing up? Maybe none. Right. Bucharest stayed with him. Mm -hmm. At some point in high school, or shortly after that, he finds his way onto the internet, along with the rest of us, and he finds a community that's actively working to reconcile all the same conflicting emotions and realities that he is. 
and eventually it becomes the alt-right. Um, I just want to like acknowledge that I'm on pretty shaky ground here. I'm like trying to read another man's soul, but I'm not the only person who's seen this in Coasting. Here's David LeBeau, a former Yale classmate of Coasting's, and we spoke in part one. Of Nietzsche, with whom I think he thought very uh, much about, who, you know, these blonde beasts at the beginning who just um, did violence because they didn't know any better. And they just, um, they were just pure vital energy and they were unbounded. And that in part meant dominating without giving it a second thought. And then there's this priestly revolt where morality comes in to, to, to tame them, to, to subordinate them. And then, um, Mankind is never the same again, and there's no way to go back to those to the blonde beasts. There's no way to become as innocently destructive as they were um, because we're too smart. And I think about him there. I mean, he, I don't think he's a well person. Let me say, I don't think he's I don't think he's schizophrenic or anything like that. But I don't think he's a mentally well person. And I think there's something about um, the provocation that might have been some sort of. And I'm speculating here. Um, some sort of compensation for a sort of insecurity. Like, like I wasn't very, myself, I wasn't that popular in middle school, and then I remember um, consciously cultivating my sense of humor uh-huh. so that I would, I would, and I turned out, it's irrelevant to this, but I'm actually extremely funny, and it was because it was um, a way to compensate for a, 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 a felt lack of social standing. And I wonder if... Um, again, I don't know what the context of his upbringing was, yeah. but I think there's some way in which the provocation um, and the, the provocation is a way to set himself apart from other people and to somehow feel superior and to hurt people who maybe have things he didn't. Um, I think there's something to that. And when I see the pictures of the blonde beast constantly on his website, um, I can't help but think that there's a sort of yearning to I don't know if it's to be with but I think it's certainly yearning to be those people and a, a knowledge at some deeper level that he won't and can't possibly ever look like that so he will never be the, the, the you know the king to go rape and slay the way he or you know steal others women that's what so much of the website's about about mm. the most vital just take, takes your woman and yeah. it's, it's very it's jarring to see that come from him because, or it's not, I think it's quite typical, um, because that would never, that would never be him. The blonde beast that he, that he talks about would never be tweeting on a website, um, pictures of people and writing down all these nomic phrases about the, the war to come or whatever. They would be out there doing things without thinking about it. So the very fact that he's writing these tweets is a testament to how impossible um, or how wide the gulf between him as a person and these fantasy ideals of what the great heroic people look like are. He, by, by creating this website, is testifying the fact that he can never be what it is he um, so fantasizes about. Mm-hmm. And I think that that gap is expressive of something deep in his psychology and what the roots of it are about his family or his upbringing or his, his childhood, I couldn't say. But there's something very wrong there. And and if it wasn't so um, so evil, it would be either harmless, entertaining, or most likely quite sad. 
but as it is, it's, it's evil. We've been dancing around it the whole time. There's a schism there that is unresolved inside of him. Yeah. 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 And maybe it's around his sexuality. Um, maybe, you know, personally, I'm neurodivergent, so I look at it and I think, hey, he, he seems neurodivergent to me. Maybe he is, maybe he's not. Right. Maybe he's, you know. Look at you empathizing with him. Well, I mean, and look at LeBeau. And maybe it's that. Maybe it's a perceived lack of social standing or some other insecurity. Maybe it's trauma in Romania, but there's something right. <laughs> has really fucked this person up pretty deeply. But it doesn't matter what it was. He's not a well person. And I don't say that to demean him. But this means that his project, his ideas, are all based on emotions that are out of touch, completely out of touch with reality. Yeah. During my conversation with David Renton, that fascism expert, we spoke to in the first two episodes of the season, I mentioned Bronze Age pervert. Very few people identify as Oh, I'm, I'm talking about somebody... I'm talking about this, this, the author of this manifesto in particular. Um, he does not identify as a fascist. He does. His, he's, he deleted it from his Twitter profile after the Unite the Right rally, but it used to say fascist. He, um, okay. I, I spoke but, but to... true fascists don't delete it from their Twitter profile. Mussolini didn't delete it from his Twitter profile. Hitler didn't delete it from his Twitter profile. Look, there's a point here, yeah? The moment you start getting people actually seriously talking about fascism, immediately... Their, their closest workers drift away from them and it causes a stink and causes a problem. And that's a bit of a clue that we're still in a moment where if you're going to see things which are going to be behaving like fascism, they're going to be not using the word fascism. Like the guy you talked about, um, it seems to me that what's at the core of his project is actually much more like reactionary, reactionary, reactionary politics rather than reactionary mass. And his constant, the thing that he comes back to, it seems to me, is an idea that there are elites who deserve to rule and everyone else should shut up. But that's not what fascism did. Fascism's relationship to its mass base was to give them, to grant them, a role in changing history. Now, the only role, as far as I can tell, this guy grants his reads in terms of changing history is that maybe if they're as clever as him, they could join him in his elite bit. But he doesn't grant the majority of people an idea that they can change history even in a more negative direction. What the fuck is coasting then? I mean, he's clearly a fascist. He's a fucking fascist. But also he's not. Like, fascism was born in the trenches of World War I. Coasting's was born on the internet and in the halls of a wealthy suburban high school. Here's LeBeau. Do you... Do you think he has any limits... Um, there's no, the, the, the type of thinking he's engaged with, there is there is nothing beyond, I mean, there's no line between it and a sort of totalitarian ethno-nationalism that involves racial domination. No, I don't think there's anything in his thought against that. Um, the limit would be that he doesn't actually believe anything. That's a problem. I don't want to, like, pathologize. I don't want to, like, psychoanalyze or anything. But, but that's like, what we're doing. But there is something to what he's doing. Again, he's not well. He's he, right. there, there is some emotional or social need that he is getting fulfilled through this project. Right. That's the maybe the best way to say it. This is the climax. we got a little bit more time. I know we've been recording for a little bit. Oh. But we got 
indulge me for one final section. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I appreciate that. What, what was the last section again? Remind me. Well, I started this whole thing by saying that he's one of my major influences artistically and politically. And he is. Here's LeBeau with one final thought. Most of political theory when we went to graduate school was dominated by Rawls and theories of justice and theories about distributive justice. And that was taken by many to be what politics were about. Mm-hmm. And I'm convinced politics is really about power and conflict. So I think most of mainstream political theory back then was it was neutering itself and blind to the realities of politics. So he and I could find um, a modicum of agreement on that position. <laughs> there was a certain scorn for the idea of liberal neutralization and depoliticization um, <laughs> that the left and right could agree on. I remember a conversation, I think it was in, of all places, Starbucks, which is a particularly banal place to have this. And I don't remember how much of this is what I said and what he said, but I remember this conversation where we came to some quite pithy conclusion. And again, it may have been me who said this and not him, but that um, all the political theory that's safe is uninteresting. And the only interesting political theory is dangerous. It was something like that. For me, that was a sort of a chastening idea. And for him, it was a sort of battle cry. First of all, what do you mean by like that it was a chastening idea for you? For me, it meant I know there's something wrong with this conventional depoliticizing liberalism. But once you move past that, things get very dangerous and very scary very quickly so that there's a increasing responsibility that comes with daring to think dangerous thoughts. So it was a, it was a reluctance to have to confront danger for me and a, reli- a sort of responsibility that one has to do so. Whereas for him, it was, let's be fucking dangerous. There was no, there was no chastening by responsibility. It was, yeah, I'm all in. The Plus Ultra, the more dangerous, the more provocative, the more um, destructive, uh, the better. There's a sort of Machian sense that, that the greatness can can destroy as much as build up, and that that there's something vital about that. The term <laughs> I always associated with him was a vitalism, which is about the life forces um, unbounded by the sorts of strictures that contemporary, modern, bourgeois, liberal society uh, force upon people. And it was that that he always, always in his provocations, there was a sense of trying to break with these, with these fetters. First thing I like about Coasting is that he's grappling with and sort of trying to oppose the depoliticizing liberalism that LeBeau talked about. And there is no one that I know of who does it as forcefully and as intentionally as him. Now, that's not an endorsement of his ideas. Again, his critiques of globo-homo lack rigor and specificity. And that's before we even talk about the violent, supremacist, racial, and gender normativity that underpins it all. He hates neoliberalism because it's not fascist enough. It's too homo, you know? His opposition to neoliberalism does not overlap with ours. There are plenty of great lefties who have way better takes on why our world is so fucked up right now. Uh, know Your Enemy, The Dig, 5-4, uh, that's the Supreme 
court one, and then the local Money Power Land Solidarity by Jake Verdon. They're all podcasts, I don't know why. But I love Koston's style. Writer to writer, I love the way he writes. I made fun of him for having half-baked ideas, but as someone who's never quite been able to fit in with people, his whole, fuck you, I said what I said, you figure it out, approach, is very appealing to me. And is central to his project. As he says, quote, Keep the eye on the task far from accomplished, to discredit authorities, to mock all public pieties, to show the leaders of government, bureaucracy, finance, corporations, big tech, and media for the pathetic ghouls they are. End quote. And, and blam, there's, there's something that I kind of agree with him about. Yeah, that, that's, <laughs> that is agreeable. Coasting, like a lot of people on the right, doesn't have a problem with elites. He just thinks we have the wrong elites. Coastin wants to see the smarmy, technocratic, professional, managerial, moralizing, liberal hypocrites laid low in favor of uninhibited Nietzschean ubermensch. There's that uh, old saying about culture being upstream from politics. Like, imagine it's an ecosystem. The current culture is the perfect environment for like this moralistic, technocratic elitism to flourish. There's an almost religious reverence for professionalism. You can check out uh, Thomas Frank's Listen Liberal for a pretty good lefty take on that. Now, part of what Coastin's trying to do is changing that environment. If he can question that unquestioned reverence for professionalism, he can change the environment. He can change the culture into a disinhibited battleground where only the most rapey of fascists will thrive, he believes. But first, he has to undercut liberal elitism. We know Bronze Age Pervert is a fascist Borat knockoff, but it surpasses Borat. Borat was always supposed to be edgy political satire, but when I think about Borat's political message, I think about Sasha Baron Cohen in a tuxedo lecturing at an awards show. There's a rigorous professionalism behind it. As a journalist, I've got mixed feelings about professionalism. On one hand, I have a tremendous amount of admiration, respect, and awe for the responsibilities of journalism. To be accurate, to be factually accurate, to provide context. Everything that goes into telling the truth in this medium. On the other hand, I remember one professor when I was in journalism school telling us we shouldn't vote so that we could avoid the appearance of bias. That is depoliticization. There's an essay by a, by a journalism theorist named Daniel Kreiss. It's brilliant. It's called Administrative Journalism. It was written in 2016 when everyone was still talking about a crisis in journalism, you know, after Donald Trump was elected, and it's a conversation that's mostly just disappeared. But the essay argues that of the, quote, six or seven contributions of the press to democracy, end quote, almost all modern journalism is geared towards just one, providing information. This approach narrows what journalism can be to, quote, a quasi-scientific public institution that generates data and information for citizens, yet in a faster, atheoretical, and more public fashion than scholarly research, end quote. The other things that journalism has to offer are lost because they are, as Christ says, more value-based investigation, analysis, providing for social empathy, convening public forums, and mobilizing the public. 
Now, most of those functions sort of could be lumped together under like the broad category of politicizing people. I'm reminded too of this really underrated essay by Hunter S. Thompson. Those daring young men and their flying machines, dot, 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 ain't what they used to be. Now, to slap my words on the piece, it's about how and why test pilots in the U.S. Air Force became professional, and it was uh, written after a trip to Edwards Air Force Base. Uh, in this piece, Thompson talks about the old days when pilots were seen as half-mad stuntmen, and he recounts the story of one Maverick pilot who, about to crash and thinking on the fly, jammed a paperclip into a circuit board to bypass this or that malfunctioning system. Thompson evokes the image of the daredevil pilot who's up drinking late, driving fast, and willing to die because the apex of life, to them, was hurtling through air at supersonic speeds in a steel cage that might or might not come apart at the rivets at any moment. Their job was to find out. It's all very romantic. And then he slaps you in the face with the test pilot's memorial window, a wall of colorful stained glass mosaics, and a chapel on the base. Quote, the original idea was to have only one memorial window, but each year invariably brought more donations so that there are only a few plain windows. All others have been replaced by stained glass memorials to the 100 names on the plaque in the chapel hallway. Two or three names are added each year on the average, but some years are worse than others. Testing planes is dangerous. The Air Force's demand for more professional pilots makes perfect sense. And yet... In the closing paragraphs of the essay, Thompson makes clear that the professionalism of the pilots isn't simply about safety. He recounts conversations with two test pilots, where he asked them about Vietnam. Now, the first one he talked to is Joe Cotton. That's the retired pilot who jammed the paperclip into the circuit. Cotton said, quote, Well, anytime you can get people emotionally disturbed about war, that's good. I've been an Air Force pilot most of my life, but I never thought I was put on Earth to kill people. The most important thing in life is concern for one another. When we've lost that, we've lost the right to live. If more people in Germany had been concerned about what Hitler was doing, he paused, half aware, and only half caring, it seemed, that he was no longer talking like a colonel just retired from the U.S. Air Force. You know, he said finally, when I fly over Los Angeles at night, I look down at all those lights. Six million people down there. That's how many Hitler killed. He shook his head. End quote. Now the next day, Thompson asks a young pilot in the officer's club bar the same question. The pilot said that he'd changed his mind about the war. Quote, I used to be all for it, but now I don't give a damn. It's no fun anymore, now that we can't go up north. You could see your targets up there. You could see what you hit. But hell, down south, all you do is fly a pattern and drop a bunch of bombs through the clouds. There's no sense of accomplishment. Hunter writes, quote, He shrugged and sipped his drink, dismissing the war as a sort of pointless equation, an irrelevant problem no longer deserving of his talents. End quote. Professionalism? is an artificial value system that values technical expertise over humanity. Think of the foreclosure crisis, when so many families lost their homes. Eviction was inevitable. It's just what happens when bank workers and sheriffs do their jobs. 
and those jobs are, of course, bounded by rigorous professional ethics and norms and standards. Professionalism goes hand-in-hand with what LeBeau called depoliticizing, neutralizing liberalism. LeBeau also called Costine's project evil. Now, as someone who was raised Catholic, that word has too much baggage for me, but I don't exactly disagree. Gross, I prefer. But credit where it's due. Costine's got style, and it's the style that politicizes people. For me, a big part of the initial attraction to Costine was sort of like the puzzle of reading his book and thinking like, what the fuck is this thing? It was like this amorphous thing that seemed to just like grow and shrink. It was like too big and too small for any box I tried to put him in. But I finally figured it out. You want to know? Let's go. Let's hear it. Now that I've, now that I've teased the it. The synthesis. Okay. In high school, I went to a Weird Al Yankovic concert at the Rapid City Civic Center once. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Had theater seating, you know, so like not not a floor. We were all like sitting in these like, you know, civic center seats. Mm-hmm. Um, he was pretty good, you know. He had these out. He had his like outrageous costumes and like really intricate sets, and was doing a bunch of really quick changes between them all. It was, it was high degree of uh, you know professionalism on display and technical prowess. He's basically performing a bunch of his music videos. And there was this girl sitting in front of me a little bit who was, like, kind of fidgety and kept looking around. We kind of, like, made eyes at each other a little bit. And I, um, you know, she looked weird. And that's my kind of girl. So uh, <laughs> I asked her to dance, which, you know, it's a weird Al concert. There's a couple of awkward high school kids. You know, mm-hmm. it just seemed natural. Um, so we went Cute. on to the, into the aisle. And we just sort of, like, wiggled around for maybe 30 seconds because <laughs> I've never been a good dancer. Um, and then security came and told us to get back in our seats. Oh. So. Buzzkill. Yeah, <laughs> and it felt really weird after that. Like, not weird how weird either. <laughs> just not disappointed. The good, not the good kind of weird. Not the good kind of weird, just disappointed. Later that night, I talked to a, a friend who had also been there and uh, asked what he thought of it. And he told me he just didn't like it. He just hated it out, outright, that it was too perfect, it was too produced, it was too controlled, that he had the feeling the whole time that if anything was even slightly out of line, Weird Al would have just flipped the fuck out. I kind of put that experience in a box in my mind and it's been sitting there for 20 years. And no offense to Weird Al, who I still enjoy, but like that's the box for Bronze Age Pervert. I see exactly what point you're making. (laughs) Yeah. Weird, zany, wacky, you know. Maintains absolute and total control. Right. Perfection. A little overwrought. You, what you were saying earlier about how it's just, it's too much. But I mean, I, we can both recognize and probably empathize with that just general Okay, should we close doing an outro conclusion really quick and just wrap the fuck up now that I've been talking for like an sure. hour and a half? Sure. Again, tons and tons of thanks to Don't Look At Me, Yeah. who has been doing all the bumper music this episode. Mm-hmm. Thanks to them. Thanks to Miles. Thank you for leading us on this journey. 
And thanks, Coaston. Oh, fuck. What? I don't want to give that guy any credit at all. <laughs> hey. Unless he wants to come on the show, then I'll give him a blow a kiss at him. <laughs> just Total kidding. affection. Just smother him in affection. Exactly. I think, I think he just needs a hug. Hug some good music, maybe. Stop listening to that yeah. classical music. Jesus Christ, that shit'll yeah, right. pollute your ears. Right? It's terrible for you. Terrible. But seriously, thank you for putting in all the work that you have into this, for reading it so yeah. that the rest of us didn't have to. <laughs> that is a monumental task. And trying to empathize. That's the biggest thing that differentiates our side from theirs. You went out of your way to do that with this man. <laughs> in a way that I can almost certainly say that he would not be willing to do for us. And so you should be commended for that. Um, not, not to disagree. I think you're right that like that give empathy, you a compliment, that humility is really central to what we do. You're right about that. I just mean, man, that like I, I don't know any of this at all. I just want somebody who knows what the fuck they're talking about <laughs> to read this goddamn book. <laughs> I just think somebody should. Somebody really knows Someone's this smarter stuff. smarter than us, yeah. Yeah, I mean, not smarter than us, man. You don't get much smarter than fucking us. Just mean, you know, somebody better read than us. <laughs> right, right, which isn't too many people if you're talking about me. Bob. Yeah. We are appreciative. Two years, people could show their appreciation with some money. Isn't that crazy? What's that? How long we've been doing this already? Yeah. We're closing in on that, Mark. We're closing in on 70 bucks a month on Patreon, too. Oh, 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 yeah, oh, man. Let's take it and just go to Boca Raton. Boca Raton. This time next year, one of us is going to Boca Raton. <laughs> <laughs> no, but thank you, dear listener. We wouldn't do it if there weren't at least a couple people listening. Yeah. Um, appreciate you all. If you would like to support us, um, you can give us money at patreon.com slash unbalancedmn. Uh, if you don't have money and want to support us, you can follow us on Twitter. Tell all your friends about us. Maybe tweet us. Help us help us with that ag- algorithmicism ratio. I don't really understand how Twitter works, actually. Dude, um, it's me either. Just tell your friends. Tell <laughs> your friends. Come, come do Twitter for us. <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at unbalanced underscore MN. And, uh, and good night. Thank you. Oh